Hey, thank you. Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. I'm glad you made it. You know, um, it's funny how quickly we become ungrateful. Uh, for the past, I woke up this morning, I was just annoyed with the weather. Um, but for the past six years, we were in Indiana. And I kind of had to stop and be like, you know, um, last year I had five layers on. It was 15 degrees and icy. This isn't so bad. And so I'm grateful that you guys braved the Georgia winter to be here with us today. Um, it is good to be with you. You know, like Rachel was saying, we're starting to orient our hearts towards this season of Lent. And I think Lent is one of those seasons that you either really, really like or you really, really avoid. Because what happens in the season of Lent is we are confronted with the messiness of our faith, with the brokenness of reality, and with the painful existence that we live sometimes as a result of being in this fallen world, in this space in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so there are those of us who really love to dig into that and process that and explore that. Then there's those of us like me who can watch inside out and not really understand why joy was a problem because it just makes sense that you wouldn't wanna deal with those emotions, right? And so regardless of where you are on the spectrum, we're entering this space where we're confronted with this reality that our faith is messy. And so as we're starting a new series, we're gonna dig into the book of Psalms and we're gonna look at what a messy faith looks like. We've called it the sound of faith because really what we get a glimpse of in the Psalms that's so different from most other parts of scripture is what it looks like for people to wrestle with the difficult aspects of what it means to believe in God. Um, one of the ways that we are hoping to equip you to do this well is through our Lent series prayer study that Stephanie Mayer wrote. And I know a lot of you guys have gone on the app and you've downloaded that. I know a lot of you guys have already been going through that first week. And so we're even gonna have the bulletin board out in the lobby after the service where those of you that have written and drawn and kind of given some artistic expression to that time can put that up. So as a community, we can share in how we're wrestling. Um, but today we're gonna go to the scriptures and we're gonna wrestle together with what a messy faith looks like. And I, I think it's good for us to be reminded of this because we live in a world that wants to clean our faith up a little bit. I think something about culture right now very much is drawn towards the pretty and the curated. And there's good things about that, right? Like God created beauty. We're supposed to be drawn to beauty, but sometimes we take that a little bit too far and we warp what faith is supposed to sound like. I, I think especially in upper middle class American Christianity, something's happened with our faith where we've taken a, a really messy, difficult faith and boiled it down to tracking with our achievements. And so think about like, um, think about Instagram Christianity, right? Like everything is nice. Everything looks good. Everything is posed. Everything is making sure that we are being driven towards a better version of ourselves, right? Like we look better. We behave better. We make more money. We have a better marriage. Our kids are better. Everything is oriented towards better. And we have this very curated, neat faith that can sometimes be discouraging. Because we look at it and we're like, that's not what it feels like to me. I don't feel great about my faith. My faith is hard. I'm struggling right now. I don't resonate with the church closed pictures of everyone smiling and look at everything God's done. And we, we have this, I think, sometimes mistaken belief that if we are not achieving, if we're not growing in prosperity, and if we're not looking like we have everything put together, that somehow God's not showing up. And what the Psalms do is they really rip the facade off of what it means to know and follow God and invite us into the struggle 
of believing in God and following God, of feeling him work in our lives in a world that doesn't always look neat and curated. And so today we're specifically gonna talk about what happens when we're praying from a place of fear. And so if you've been in our study with us, hopefully this is a passage that you've gotten to know really well over the last week. We're gonna be in Psalm chapter six. And we're gonna talk about what it looks like when we're praying from a place of fear. So we're just gonna start and read a little bit and talk a little bit. He says, oh Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And so you see somebody here with a pretty intense feeling of despair, right? Like you just even look at the words and the feelings that he's emoting, that his soul is greatly troubled. His bones are troubled. Down to the essence and core of his being, he was disturbed or she was disturbed. And the frustrating thing about Psalms is it's not, it's not neat. We don't have an explanation for this. We don't know if this is physical illness. We don't know if this is political unrest. We don't know if this is personal conflict. We don't know if this is another type of suffering. Did he just get fired? Like what happened? We have no idea what is bothering him so much. But instantly, we connect with this idea that this is someone in despair. And it's interesting that what we see here, and this is kind of the first place that we need to understand how this works. Here's what happens. Despair always creates fear and insecurity in us. When despair hits our lives, we almost always go to a place where we are scared, suspicious, and insecure. Something about the lack of rootedness, the threat of what we can't control, the pain that we're experiencing, takes us to a place of questioning. That's what he's doing here. It's interesting, he starts this passage with God. He's looking for God. Like if you read this in the Hebrew, the first word is God. He says, God, where are you? Where are you, God, I'm troubled. I'm troubled. He's scared. And it's interesting when you look at this, he's asking God not to rebuke or discipline him. So a lot of people are like, oh, he messed up. He messed up. Something bad happened here. What's interesting about the Psalm is it's different than Psalms of confession where they are naming sin or confessing to sin or acknowledging sin. That's largely absent in this text. And so what we don't have is someone saying, oh man, I messed up. God, please don't punish me. From, from what we can read, there's not a specific sin or issue that's driven him to this place. This is just life pushing in on him. So the first thing that he does is question if God's good. He said, God, don't punish me with your wrath. Don't get mad at me. God, don't make me learn this the hard way is another way of kind of processing what he's teaching here because the wrath of the discipline that they're talking about here isn't so much as God punishing sin as much as it's a look at this concept that sometimes God allows difficulty in our lives to help us grow or change or understand a truth. He's saying, God, don't make this the hard way. Like, can we do this the easy way? And it's interesting that this prayer that he's, he's taking before the Lord is, is driven out of, before anything else, questioning if God is gonna be good to him. God, how is this gonna happen? And it's a little bit almost like karma is what it looks like. He's saying, God, don't do anything bad to me. I haven't done anything good. Are you gonna, are you gonna do something bad? Is this, are you gonna get me? Haven't we been like, listen, how, how many times have you been in a place where life is pressing in on you in a way that's uncomfortable? And one of the first questions you ask is like, God, why are you letting this happen? Like, is this because I lost my temper 
on 400 the other day? Is this because like the light was, was green and he was sitting there for 15 seconds, I had to honk, what was I supposed to do? That's a public service, right? Like, is this because, not that I've ever done that, but I know people have, right? And so he's almost like cataloging the events of his life and saying, God, is this a punishment? Is that how you work? Is this what you do to me? Are you out to get me? Like, I am not doing okay. <laughs> I am troubled to my bones. How long are you going to let this happen to me? Where are you? What are you doing? And so I think this is important because if we're not careful, when we get these feelings, when we get these doubts, when we get these wrestles, we can buy into this concept, whether it's something that we've been taught or just something that we sort of subconsciously go to, where we say, okay, how do I make it go away? How do I achieve my way out of feeling like this? How, how do I feel better? How do I make the sad go away? How can I just figure my way out of this mess? And then we'll be good again, right? And so we're tempted to skip over going to the Lord with these struggles and these frustrations and say, I just need to fix this and get cleaned up before I go to God. So listen, God, I'm not okay, um, but I, can't, I don't feel like I'm allowed to say that. And so instead of going to the Lord and saying, what are you gonna do? It's like, okay, God, I'm gonna make you happy, right? For those of us that are achievers, we're gonna say, God, I, I, I'm worried you might be mad at me. What can I do to make you happy again? Maybe if I serve um, in the kids' ministry, maybe if I write a bigger check, maybe if I'm nicer to my spouse, maybe if I you know, buy my neighbor Starbucks, like whatever, fill in the blank. And we start to put this pressure on ourselves that we need to achieve our way out of this because in our despair and our insecurity, we say, I need to do something to fix this. What's maddening about this psalm is there's not a solution here, right? At no point is he going to God and saying, God, here's the five things that I'm gonna do to get rid of my despair and insecurity. They all start with the same letter. And I think this is gonna turn into a book and speaking circuit after I'm done. That's not what it says, is it? He says, God, I'm troubled. I don't know what to do. Are you gonna get me? Hmm? Can Arsenal not win a game because I lost my temper with my kids? Like, is this how you're punishing me this week? I know it's the Super Bowl. That's just some cross-cultural fun for you, right? But listen, seriously, the most important reality we see in this psalm is that this is without agenda and without a fix and without an explanation. He is opening the reality of his heart before the Lord and saying, God, I don't know what to do. And I almost feel like I'm a little bit scared of you right now. And I wonder if sometimes in the weight of our suffering, one of the most powerful realities that this psalm would invite us to do would just be to open up with God about the reality of where we're at with him. Um, one of the difficulties of the psalms is that this is not a blueprint of what we're supposed to do. Um, there's, not, there's not an activity list. We don't have a solution to his problem. We just simply have him wrestling with the Lord. And so I think it's important for us to look at this and give ourselves permission to have the same wrestles. Because if we don't, like if we're not going to be able to recognize where we're at with the Lord, then we're just gonna bury it and try to fix it ourselves. And it has the potential to really drive us into a dark place because it, it, it takes us to a place where we forget who God is. I think one of the most powerful realities that we see out of this first section here is here's someone in despair and insecurity and they run towards the Lord with it. And for some reason, we feel like we can't do that until we fix the problem. But just in the depth of his despair, he's like, okay, God, this is just really what's going on. 
And it's this really raw, honest, almost complaint to the Lord of I'm not okay, are you gonna get me and how long are you gonna let this happen? And, and I wonder if sometimes, especially in a year where we're focusing on prayer, if our prayer life can feel dry or ineffective or like, you know, it's, it's a bit dead because we don't come to God in a place of honesty and raw vulnerability. We come to him in this very rote, okay, it's God, so I need to be happy. I need to do things the right way. And I need to just make sure he knows that I'm checking all of my behavioral boxes. And I wonder if there's something in us that for whatever reason doesn't feel like we can have sort of the messy God, here's where I'm stuck relationship with him. And so our prayer life is a bit restrained. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit cleaned up, maybe, maybe a little bit less than authentic. But here's the thing is when we are scared, we are going to be put in a place of fear and insecurity. I don't know what scares you. I know for me for a really long time, um, when I was a kid, I was probably, I don't know, it probably started about fifth grade. I was in Texas and we were learning about tornadoes and we get them in Texas occasionally. And so we had just had uh, the big, an F5 is the most powerful tornado that you can have. And in the Texas Hill Country, there is slash was a town called Gerald, Texas, and it was hit with one of the worst tornadoes that had ever happened in the history of the state. And so at this time, we're learning about tornadoes. And so from that moment on, as a 10-year-old, I was terrified anytime it would storm because I was terrified of severe weather. And so when the weather warning would start to beep or whether it would get dark, I would physically start to feel sick. Like my stomach would hurt. I would feel like I want to throw up. I, I couldn't stop. It would physically debilitate me. And something about that storm and that reality took me to a place of debilitating fear. And unfortunately, when I really dig into that, ultimately, here's what's scary about tornadoes to me. Um, there is nothing I can do to control them or stop them. I'm just kind of at their mercy, right? Like you can go in the basement, but that's about it. Like there is no solution to that problem. And so when we're in a place of fear, we get paralyzed. We are reminded and confronted that we can't do anything about the problem. And that's a wrestle that exists in a sinful, fallen, broken world. What frustrates me about this text is I don't have the instant solution to this guy's pain. He just keeps talking. And so let's, let's follow what he says next. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. For in Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping and my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. So he continues to invite God into this place of suffering. He says, God, if you don't save me, who's gonna praise you? And he like starts this logical appeal to God. He's almost pleading his case for God to come and rescue him out of whatever's happening. He's saying, God, please come save me, I need you. Like if you don't save me, look, this could happen, it could be bad. You know, hey God, if you don't save me, nobody's gonna praise you in the place of death, which is what Sheol is. And then the, the just explicit picture of how he feels should resonate really, really deeply with us. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. 
I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief and it grows weak because of all of my foes. This, this passage, the depth of what he's feeling has almost become unacceptable to us in the cultural expression of our faith because this looks like failure. To be at a place where all you can do is wet your bed, flood your bed with your tears and drench your couch because of how much sorrow that you have almost feels like a failure. Because the cultural response to suffering is, well, why don't you do something to get yourself out of it? You know, and, and, and our faith can start to kind of sound like Job's friends where we wanna explain the why we're sad and give some steps on how to get out of it. And maybe, hey, well, let's talk about how, some fixes here. What if we made a budget? And hey, well, what if we contacted a lawyer? Have you tried this doctor? Or, you know, have you tried to repent from this sin that I see in your life? Have you, have you maybe thought that God's punishing you because of your political views and beliefs? And, and we go through this myriad of ways we can get out of this place of crying so much that we feel like we're gonna die because that level of vulnerability, that loss of control, being oppressed by that level of suffering feels like failure. And if God's really God, well, we can't fail, so there must be a problem with us. And it discourages us. Really, another way to say that is the reality of suffering kind of chokes out the hope that we have, right? That's that next point, is that we almost have our hope choked out of us by the realities of a broken world. How can God be good if I have people dying of a disease that God chose not to heal? How can God be good when there is financial suffering that is impacting my family? How can God be good when there are so many instances of injustice and so many horrible things that are happening in the world around me? How, how, how do these two poles work together? And this isn't like an abstract suffering. This is a very deep personal suffering. Have, have you been in that place where you are weeping so much that you literally are drowning your couch in tears? And the worst part about it is there's no, again, there's no steps out of it. He's saying this is too big for there to be steps out of. Um, I, I remember like if you think about, you, this is mirrored. I love that this Psalm mirrors so well the disciples when Jesus calms the storm. Have you guys read that narrative in the New Testament? They're crossing the sea, this lake really, and the storm comes up and it's threatening to drown these guys um, who grew up on the water. So for them to be scared, it was probably a pretty big storm. And Jesus is asleep. And the first thing they say to him is, don't you care? Hey, don't you care that we're gonna die? Like you're here too, don't you care that we're gonna die? You almost get that sense of desperation from the psalmist here is God, don't you care about me? Um, I remember when I was in college, I was um, just not doing well at what I wanted to do with my life. I went to college for, um, my, I majored in biblical studies um, in Dallas. And I remember at the time looking around and just feeling overwhelmed with sadness because there was just a disconnect between what I felt like um, was happening in my life and, and everyone else who, I, who felt normal. Um, you know, it was a Southern Baptist school and there's definitely, I think, a cultural look and vibe that you wanna have in a Southern Baptist school and ministry. And, and frankly, I was just incapable of that for a number of reasons. And so um, I remember just feeling like a complete failure. I was not the person anyone wanted to choose for a ministry. I, I was not doing well academically in some of my classes. I was really struggling relationally. I didn't feel like I fit. And I remember just being in the bed of my truck um, in the parking lot 
Christmas, Texas, so you, everybody has trucks. Um, I remember just being in the bed of my truck, and I remember just crying for hours, for hours. It was late at night. I didn't want to be around my roommates because everything just felt so hopeless. There was no solution to my problems. There was no fix. It felt like this existential failure um, that I felt that I embodied. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand how God could make me so broken and messed up and why he was okay with that when everybody else seemed to have it all together. And I remember just being there and crying. And there was no solution to it. Um, I was terrified to tell anybody that I felt that way because, well, that disqualifies you if you don't have it all together, right? Because, well, leadership and we have these. And so, so for me, the idea of being that vulnerable with feeling that unable to exist as a person wasn't something I could speak out loud. And I was just left there crying out to the Lord. And at some point, if we've lived long enough, we found ourselves in that place where it doesn't really matter what we do, it's, it's not enough to fix the problem and there's no answers. And we just feel like the psalmist feels that we're literally wasting away because of our grief. And if we're not careful, if we make our faith overly practical and overly pragmatic, we eliminate the space to recognize and live in this reality that we live in a sinful, messy world, and sometimes just getting out of bed is a fight that we feel like we can't win. And the Psalm reminds us that this is a normal human experience. The depth of pain and grief and suffering is not something that only is happening in our lives. This is a universal reality of where we live in. In our faith, our God is big enough to make room and make space for us to suffer, for us to give words to our feelings. To, look, look, look what he does with this. He brings it before the Lord because ultimately this is a prayer. At the depth of his brokenness, of his despair, of his hopelessness, as the realities of a broken, choking the life out of him, there's nothing that he can do as that is weighing more and more and more on him, he just goes to the Lord and is completely open about where he is. He invites God into that presence. We even see a picture of this in the person of Jesus Christ because when Jesus came to earth, when he was with the disciples, he didn't like, look, Jesus would have probably been a good weatherman, right? Like in his omniscience and his all-knowing God deity-ness, he knew the storm was coming. So like, it wasn't like he got on the boat and was like, oh, wow, I didn't know I would have packed a coat. He knew what was going to happen. So if he wanted to, he could have been like, you know what, you guys get on the boat. I'll just, um, I'll meet you on the other side. I'm going to walk. It's good. He didn't do that, right? He actually got in the boat with them. And in the incarnation of Jesus, that's really what he did is he got in the boat with us. It's this picture of God's closeness to us that in our suffering, God is not absent. He's not abstract and he's not uncaring. We have a God who enters these spaces of suffering with us and comes alongside of us. God, why don't you fix it? I don't know. Like we don't get the answer to that. We don't get the answer to that. And I don't know why. I would love blueprints. I like plans. I like resolution. I also like control. And so I can't stand here with a straight face and integrity and say that I can explain to you why God allows suffering and why sometimes he works and sometimes he doesn't. Scripture actually warns us not to try to explain God too much because he's beyond what we can understand. But what we know, what we know is that in his wrestle, the psalmist understands that we have a God who invites us to share our suffering with him. 
that enters into that suffering with us through his spirit and his presence. We saw Jesus model this. He was in the boat with them. We have a God who invites us to be broken and raw in front of him. He's not demanding that the psalmist gets his act together before he comes, right? Like he is a God who invites us close. He's a God who invites us close because the reality is God understands suffering because he suffered like we did. He entered the world and lived the life that everyone else of this time lived and suffered in all of the ways that they suffered. He was tempted in all of the ways that they were tempted. Now, in his perfection, he did that in a way that was sinless, but that doesn't exempt him from knowing and understanding people's frustration. You see people come to Jesus weeping because of different illnesses. You see people come and weeping to Jesus because someone died, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it, I got it. He weeps with them. He walks alongside their suffering because that's who God is. That's his heart for his people, is to walk alongside us in our suffering to comfort the afflicted, to heal the broken. And so in this cry, we have this permission from scripture to be messy in front of the Lord and and to cry out to him when we feel hopeless. Part of the church community's job is to make space to cry out to God together, to weep with those who weep and to sit with those who are uncomfortable. And I'll be honest, this is bad. This is not something that I'm good at. It's not bad, I'm bad at it because I just wanna fix a problem. I don't, know if, I don't know if there's problem fixers out there, like there's feelers and fixers, I think. Um, I'm definitely a fixer. Like, let's just be happy. Uh, I've, I've done a horrible job as a parent, really, through this move with my middle schooler. It was a hard move for him. He had to move in middle school. And I'm like, well, let's just be happy. <laughs> it's not gonna help you to be sad, right? Like, I mean, just the worst parenting advice you could probably give a kid. And so one day a therapist will buy a lake house because of how I've handled this transition with my middle schooler. And I just, I look at this and, and I see God model something different for us. He says, it is safe for you to bring your tears and your frustration and the realities of the hopeless world you live in to me. And then we're gonna see why, because watch what happens next. We get this really important reminder, not of what God does, but of who God is. He says, depart, like just in verse eight, this this becomes a completely different prayer. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is, this is a 180 degree turn. Why? Because God heard his prayer. God heard his prayer and suddenly what was pressing in on him just evaporated. Here's what drives me crazy about this. We don't know how he knows God answered his prayer. We don't know when God answered his prayer. And we really don't even know how God answered his prayer. There are no details in this answer, like none. There's no explanation. There's no strategy. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I prayed like this and God answered my prayer just like this because of how I did it. So if you pray like I do, then God will, you, you see none of that. You see none of the how, but what you see is the who. You see that because God answered his prayer, all of the people who were surrounding him and harassing him had been driven away and put to shame because God showed who he really was. And so when it talks about the evil um, workers and the enemies that were departing from him, there, there's, some, there's a few different ways to look at these people. Again, what we know is a lack of specific information in the Psalm is these don't necessarily seem to be people that were actively attacking the Psalmist, although they could have been. 
We see David writing Psalms where he's talking about people that are pursuing and trying to kill him. This doesn't necessarily look like that. Could be, it doesn't look like that though. More likely than not, what most people would say is they're interpreting this is that these are people who are either mocking or rejoicing in the psalmist's suffering. Um, people who were kind of the Job friends trying to, oh, well, it's because you sinned. People who maybe doubted that God would ever do anything for him. Basically, broad category, the, the people that are now put to shame, the enemies that are now experiencing the shame that the psalmist was experiencing at the beginning were probably be people that were amplifying the suffering that he was going through and saying he either deserved it or rejoicing in it or saying that, yeah, you have no hope, you're done. And so ultimately what he's, what he's communicating here is that because God answered his prayer, he was saved from what was oppressing him. Because God answered his prayer, the people that, that thought that he was resigned to suffer are now proven wrong. And so here's what we can say for sure about this. This points us to the spiritual realities that our only hope is God answering our prayers. In the midst of our suffering, our only hope is God is answering our prayers. That's it. That's it. And we talk about this a lot through a lot of different lenses, right? About how sort of the, the sparkle and the shine of the worldly solutions to our deepest problems never quite works out how we think and we always need more, right? Like if, if, if it's money that's gonna be the problem, well, the more you get, the, you, you kind of realize, well, I need more now. I mean, buying a Porsche will fix your soul for like a half hour, maybe an hour if it's a nice one, right? Um, and then you need something else. So money doesn't quite work. We know relationships don't quite work because, well, people are imperfect. We know that stuff doesn't quite work, that achievement, that like all of the false idols that we chase for salvation from what oppresses us eventually prove to not work as well as we thought. And so in our, in our suffering, in our suffering, we're brought to this reality with the psalmist that the only hope that he had was God answering his prayer. And this is even woven through the first two sections where he says, how long, God, I need you. God, are you gonna save me? I need you, I need you, I need you. There's this constant crying out for God because even in his suffering, he's rooted in this reality that God's answer is his only hope. What's frustrating is we don't know how long God took. We don't know how God accomplished it. We don't know why God allowed the suffering to happen. But here's what we do know is that God invites the wrestle, that God invites the wrestle. Because what we know about God is God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who is good and God is a God who loves us. And so what we can be confident in is that as we wrestle, as we're broken, as we're imperfect, as we fail, as we sin, as we're sinned against, that we can cry out to a God who wants to hear our prayers so he can answer them. And as Christians, one of the foundations of our faith is that as we wrestle imperfectly, and fall short of who we feel like we're supposed to be, that we have a God who came to earth and died on the cross and rose again three days later so we could be transformed, so we could be sinless and have the promise of eternal life. So that as we see the authors of the New Testament write, even at the depths of our suffering, we can cling with confidence to this treasure that can't be stolen from us. Not through persecution, not through death, not through sickness, not through circumstances, that we have this eternal life and this reality of being children of God that transcends our suffering. It doesn't make our suffering less painful. It doesn't make our suffering easier and it certainly doesn't answer the question of why. However, it reminds us that we have a God who is our only hope. And so as we celebrate communion today, as we come to God, we're coming from a lot of different places. For some of us, we're coming to God from the perspective of the last few verses of this, where we can see where he's answered our prayers. 
We can see where God has saved us. We can see where he's come through. We're on the other side of suffering. We're like, God, you have saved me, and we thank him. For others of us, we're, we're somewhere towards the beginning of the psalm where we're asking some questions because we're scared of suffering that we can't control. God, are you good? Is this you punishing me? Is this you doing something to teach me a lesson? Like, what are you doing, God? I don't understand this. For others of us, we're, we're right there in the middle where we are drowning our furniture in tears. And we don't understand where God is and why he's taking so long. And hope feels very far away. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that regardless of where we are as we call out to God, we are secure in the reality that he is a God who hears us, he is a God who is near to us, and he is a God who loves us. In our failures, in our mess, in our brokenness, in our confusion, he's a God who comes near to us with a promise of salvation. And so as we celebrate communion, we, ha we have these tangible reminders of that hope that we can touch and taste that in the midst of a really busy world that sometimes is very painful to live in, we get this glimpse of an eternity that is going to save us from the afflictions that threaten to crush us now. And so regardless of whether or not we are celebrating God's salvation or we're clinging on to our faith with our fingernails, we have a God who's waiting to hear and we have a God who is waiting to save. And so if you would pray with me as we approach God with confidence, regardless of where we find ourselves in a mess. God, we thank you for your word and that as we struggle, um, God, as we struggle with suffering that we don't understand and can't fix, we thank you that we do have a hope in you. And so God, I just pray that as a people, we would feel the freedom to cry out to you, to suffer with one another, to be open and vulnerable with our doubts, with our anger, with our fears. God, I pray that we would be a people that run to you, not, not with expectation of understanding, but with the expectation of love and salvation. And God, we pray that you would move and save us from where we're hurt and save us from where we're scared. God, shape our hearts so that in the midst of fear and confusion, we don't lose sight of the truth of who you are, that you are a God who loves and that you are a God who saves and that in our darkest places, you have not abandoned us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.